Welcome to the St. James Sermon Podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Hi, I'm Eugene Scott, uh, one of the pastors here at St. James. It's a pleasure to be working technology uh, in order for God's Word to be uh, transmitted out to people. It was so great to worship with some of you in person last week and uh, looking forward to more of those opportunities in the future as God begins to heal and calm down our world. We're in a series called Galvanized, uh, studying the book of Philippians, and today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, the second half of the chapter 5 or 3rd, verses 5 through 11. So hear now the very words of God um, filtered through the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made it himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The very words of God, may they challenge, comfort, correct each of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for technology. In the first century, you used a different kind of technology to reach our world with Christ, and today it's, it's something new, but it's no surprise to you. And so, God, we pray that as people uh, hear this, watch this, tune in in some way, that you would speak. And, Lord, we pray for healing for our world, that you would intervene with your healing hand and your touch. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I lost my mind. Now, some of you who know me may say, no, that happened more than a few years ago. But you'll see what I mean here in a minute. I'm playing with words. I was obsessed with the political news. Maybe you are today, too. I know so many people who... Uh, can't break away from the news feeds, the talking heads of some kind. But I, like many people today, thought that the world was about to collapse if my candidate or my ideas didn't win the day. I would come home from church, from work, and turn on the arguing heads, not talking heads, they were arguing, at about 6 o'clock and not stop watching until after 10. Dee Dee and the kids 
hated it. I always wondered why I was just sitting in there alone. Now I'm not surprised. I was getting no writing done. I had several writing projects I needed to finish. I was constantly agitated, upset, running things through my mind. My mind was full of all the ideas I had heard and read and seen about our world. And I'd ruminate on, on how I would answer whoever I'd heard speaking, or how I would write something that would be just a, a mic drop moment to correct all the people that didn't agree with me. But the news cycled crisis issues like a malfunctioning dish washing machine stuck on the spin cycle. And I couldn't keep up with the current crisis. It was crazy and crazy making. I lost my mind. Because all that was really happening was the endless spinning of my mind. Maybe you have experienced that, where it just keeps running and running and running. So maybe many of you have lost your minds in that same way. More than likely, they've really been stolen by someone, the media, or the so-called thought leaders. But there's a remedy for this losing our minds in that way, to this anxiety and the frustration that many of us are experiencing today. In this astounding and beautiful passage that poetically encapsulates the entire gospel, we're told in the old King James to have the mind of Christ. I wonder as, as we get ready, have there been times when you felt like you had the mind of Christ? It's an odd phrase, it's an odd thought. That's why I think the translators say, have the mindset or agree with, but that's not really what it means. It means to have the mind of Christ. Have a mind like Christ had. How do we do that? If you look in the passage, you see that Christ knew his essence. He knew, in essence, he was God. And so one of the first things we can know about having the mind of Christ is grasping Christ's mind, is, is knowing what he thought, how he understood himself. I'm going to play with that word grasp. It's again in the older language. This, this passage says that he did not, um, let me go back to it. Uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But, but really, I like that word. He didn't grasp it because it's, it's, we can see what happens. It's physical. And what that means is that though he was God and he didn't give up being God to come and be incarnate, to be God with us, he didn't grasp, he didn't hold on to, he didn't depend on his godness in that sense. If we look at the way our world works, 
We're always grasping, fighting for our rights, speaking up for ourselves. I mean, we're in a world right now that's having riots and, and protests, and I understand people's frustration levels, but that's what it means to grasp at something. We watch the political debates and we see fights and interruptions and childlike behavior because they're grasping at power. They're, they're grasping at money. And we do the same thing over and over again. And rather than that, Jesus emptied himself of that. This, again, doesn't mean he gave up being God. He was God. But he emptied himself of the grasping for power, of the using of his deity to make others submit. Rather, he used servanthood. And this emptiness is a Pauline play on words. Earlier, we are told that we grasp at power and identity, and it's all empty conceit. So Paul is saying Jesus didn't take empty conceit, but he emptied himself of anything that would smack of conceit and grasping and power. It's a remarkable move. And, and in so doing, he assumed the nature of a servant. Some people say he became a servant. But a pastor friend of Wayne's, Greg Johnson, says that Jesus did not so much become a servant, but exposed the servant nature of God. You see, in John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver. God is a servant God. And Jesus came, and when he dressed in flesh, that's what we saw of him. You know how some people, when they, they dress a certain way, a military person, they look powerful. Then they dress in their civvies, and they look normal. Jesus dressed in such a way, in flesh, so that we would see the servant heart of God. It's important for us to grasp the mind of Christ that this is what he's doing. He could have come with lightning bolts, with ultimatums, but that wouldn't have really revealed the heart and the mind of Christ. Instead, he knows who he is, but he doesn't hold on to it. He empties himself. And he assumes servanthood for us. He doesn't change his essence, but changes how he appears to us and shows us who he truly is. Maybe a story that would help with this, because in those very concepts, there are commentaries that could fill libraries of the world and, and seminary professors that could go on forever. Important ideas and words and concepts. And we don't have time for that, but, but maybe a story will help. I don't know if you've read Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. And I don't know if Twain intended it to be a metaphor or an allegory or a picture of the incarnation of Christ, but it is in some respects. Prince Edward and Pauper Tom Ch Ch Chanty discover they look 
identical, though they're not twins. And they decide to switch places, and Prince Edward becomes the pauper and spends his time doing so. And and that's where the real metaphor is, that he discovers that grasping the fact that he is the king's son and he is due treatment that's different than a pauper, he releases that, but he never stops being Prince Edward. He never stops being the king's son. And of course, the story is about how power should be used differently, how he learns to be a more kind servant king when he actually becomes king. And of course, Jesus doesn't learn that. He knows that. He comes to teach us that. But that's really a picture of what happens. And in the end, Prince Edward proves that he is, in fact, not Tom, but the prince through a birthmark. And really, the truth of it is that Jesus proves his deity through a birthmark as well, through the servant nature of God through lowering himself, condescending, not standing on the throne. In the end, Jesus is not exalted in power as we know power. But all kneel to him in wonder at the powerful, humble love of God. Mother Teresa held a great deal of power in our world, but she didn't do it through the sword or through the ballot box. She did it through serving. And that's the exact picture. So when it says that this Jesus is exalted and at Jesus' name every knee shall bow, it doesn't mean because he'll be holding a sword. It means because we will have understood servanthood different that is the mind of christ and he became like us that we could become like him so how do we grasp the mind of christ how do we have the mind of christ by understanding that he knew who he was where he came from And he didn't have to have a sign saying, King of the universe. As a matter of fact, he served. How could Jesus take such a risk? And how can we take such a risk to have the mind of Christ, to become servants, to not scratch and claw and fight? Jesus didn't have to grasp He condescended, he lowered himself and and emptied and, and took on flesh and revealed the servant heart of God by trusting, like Prince Edward did his king father, that the Father and the Spirit would never abandon or betray him. He knew his union with the Father and the Spirit could never be broken. How do we gain the mind of Christ? Through grasping 
the idea of, of humility in Him, but also of unity, of union. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, since we are united with Christ, some translators use the word if instead of since, but it's really better translated since. It's already, since we are united with Christ, there are a whole list of beautiful things that Paul says we can access. And in verse 5 then, since we are united with Christ, we can access the mind of Christ. And that's the beautiful thing. This passage, whether you have read it that way or heard it that way or not, is really a Trinitarian passage. As I said, it's, it's, it's a beautiful depiction of the entire gospel. If you read the gospel of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll see that, that this is the story, that, that Jesus came down from heaven. He was born in a cradle, um, in a manger, lowly, and then was crucified and was raised up to the seated on the right hand. So this poem really is a poem encapsulating the entire gospel. And if so, then it has to be Trinitarian as well. What does it mean to be unified? We have to look at the Trinity to understand that. Most of us... <laughs> really, if we consider the Trinity at all, we think of it mechanically or abstractly. We say it's a mystery, which is true. Mystery simply means God knows what it is, but we can't quite grasp the truth of it, the depth of it. So we say things like the Trinity is like an egg, a yolk, a white, and a shell, or like water, ice, vapor, and liquid. But these metaphors really only show that sometimes there are three things in God's world that make up one. You know, it's called the rule of threes. Writers write usually three movements. They're three-act plays. So three plays an incredible role in our world. And, and some people argue that that's because Trinity is three in one. But that's really just an understanding of, of a concept, of of an abstract, and it's mechanical. And, and some people would argue, if you and I sit down and talk about the Trinity a little bit more, uh, I would argue as well that, that some of those metaphors are actually heretical. They, they talk about God in a way he doesn't really talk about him himself or exist. But mostly they don't really show who God is in Trinity. They show how three can make up one but they don't show who God is. Or, more importantly maybe, who we are in relationship to the Trinitarian God. How does an egg being three in one draw me closer to God? Or water <laughs> being liquid? Gas and a solid all at once. A better way to think of Trinity is the way that the Orthodox Greek church has talked about it for maybe a thousand years. They use this word perichoronesis, 
perichoresis, rather. It's a Greek term that they use to describe the triune relationship between each person of the Godhead. It's been depicted by some as a dance. It can be defined dictionary-wise as a co-indwelling, a co-inhering, a mutual interpenetration. Alistair McGrath writes that perichoresis allows the individuality of the persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. In other words, it's a relational picture. People dancing are in relationship with one another. An image, another image often used to express this idea is that of a community of being, not beings, but a community that exists together, in which each person while maintaining its distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. Yes, you should have thought of sex. Penetration. Interpenetration. You see, the Trinity is so true and so real about a description of God that, that everything in life emanates from it. And so it can only be that the way God designed us to create new beings is through becoming one, penetrating one another, and interestingly enough, making another human being. That in itself can be understood and explained on a cellular level but on a metaphysical level, it too is a mystery. And I brought up sex for two reasons. One is just to shock you, because I don't know if we can make the jump from talking about the Trinity is like ice to the Trinity is like sex. But that really is a better picture of it, because listen to how Jesus talks about his perichornetic relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He says that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father, Father, he prays, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He tells his disciples, when the Advocate, the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is talking about a relational existence in something called the Trinity. Both this passage and the concept of, of Trinity calls for a lot more study. And again, if we can get together at some point and, and talk about it, more in depth, there's nothing I would enjoy more than getting to know you, number one, and, and talking theology and hearing your ideas and thoughts. But what I'm getting at is that the unity that Paul talks about in the end of chapter one of, 
of Philippians in the beginning of chapter 2 is not simply for us to agree with one another, it's for us actually to become a part of one another as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are part of one another. Not to the extent that they are, because they are the creators of this idea. But many of us have an attitude about the Trinity similar to a person who says, yes, I believe in gravity and I understand it, but they still walk around with a 10-pound weight strapped to their leg, just in case. Trinitarian theology is the very structure of life. That's why I mentioned sexuality. That's why the church is called a body. Over and over again, this unity and this diversity is not a paradox or a contradiction, but an expression of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By understanding that, we can grasp how we too are in Christ and Christ is in us. And therefore, Paul says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus had. You should have the same relationship with one another that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. What is that relationship? Christ knew his place. By understanding that, we can grasp how we too are in Christ and we can relate to others the way the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus relate to us. Newton's third law of motion is a really simple one. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. That's a physical law, physical truth, but it's also a relational law and a relational truth. Have you ever noticed that grasping, fighting, demanding, arguing produces an equal and opposite amount of grasping, arguing, pushing, fighting? But Jesus came with a different idea. Out of his secure place in the Trinity, he emptied himself. And so instead of demanding his rights as king of the universe, he gave himself as a servant. And what that has done throughout history is drawn people to him rather than pushed people away. Had he come with a fist, we would have raised our fists against him. But he came as a servant, and people who loved and desired a servant were drawn to him. We gain the mind of Christ by knowing Christ's mind that of unity in the Trinity, that of a servant 
He could take the risk of opening His arms on the cross and dying because He knew His place. We too can empty ourselves, can open ourselves up and be secure in our place in God's love. Back to my opening story of losing my mind. In 2012, rather, at the church I helped plant, the neighborhood church, which is just uh, west of here, we decided to participate in Lent. And by God's grace and encouragement, I chose to engage Lent as a fast from TV and radio. Remember my addiction? I went cold turkey. I shut it all off. And I decided not to just give something up, but to feast on something. To feast on silence. So it's interesting, now I see what happened, and I'm giving words to it now that fit this, this message, but I emptied myself and made room for the mind of Christ. You see, because we can have the mind of Christ because Christ is in us. We don't have to simply imitate his thoughts and actions. We don't have to take his words and use them for our power. But rather, Paul says in Romans, the Spirit is in us. Over and over again, the Scripture says that the Spirit comes to indwell us. Therefore, the mind of Christ is in us. And if you are struggling gaining the mind of Christ, it's largely like me because you're filling your mind with so many other things that his still quiet voice can't be heard. And so when I gave up TV and radio, which I encourage you to do, Facebook, I made room for the mind of Christ to grow in me. Didi says it transformed me in my household, in our household. It brought peace to our house. And remember, that's what Paul's talking about. Have this mind as you relate to one another. I got my mind back. You see, I didn't just become an automaton of Christ, but I began to think my own thoughts, baptized by his thoughts, by his ideas. I wasn't thinking TV news thoughts any longer. Instead of thinking about the latest out-of-control spin cycle, I, I found myself at stoplights praying for people, listening, looking around and, and trying to see if I could see God doing something or speaking something in our world. I began to write again in my journals. I began for the first time in years since college to write poetry. And my first ever published poem was called The Feast of Silence, written about this experience. And I was talking with friends and family about daily life, not about political issues or ideas or abstracts. It was so rich. And you know, that was eight years ago. I've not really gone back to watching television 
or listening to the radio since. I'm not legalistic about it. The Broncos are playing right now. Obviously, I'm not watching, but I'll listen to it a little. But they out there no longer have my mind. Christ has my mind. That's the biggest thing I've noticed in these past eight years. Having my own mind again and listening for and to God and growing and gaining in the mind of Christ. I no longer worry about protecting myself or promoting myself. And I love serving in a way that I I, I used to think was kind of a duty, a responsibility of a Christian. But now I feel like it's part of my nature. I worry less. I have my right mind back. And actually, it's the mind of Christ. Because He has slowly but surely shown me that since Christ died for me, since I belong to Christ, I can be in Him and Him in me and have His mind. May God make it so for each one of us. And now as we go, and whatever that looks like in this upside-down world, maybe it's simply going into your living room, going to work on Zoom, going to the grocery store. As you go, may Christ go before you as a guide, beside you as a friend, behind you as a protector, and inside you as the Holy Spirit of wisdom and comfort and grace and correction. Go now with God. St. James is a Presbyterian church located in Littleton, Colorado. Find us on the web at www.sjpres.org or email us at contact at sjprez.org.